Cool. Well, I'm going to start recording. We can hang out. We'll talk a little shop. Um, talk about the fact you were on the podcast uh, earlier this week. We recorded last week and then put it out. Basically, a chance to promote your newest book, which is an AI branding book. Very good. Nice and thorough. Really you know, I feel like go pretty in depth with stuff. Thank you. Thank you. I'm I'm glad. Um, I'm glad you thought it was thorough because I, I definitely was trying to, um, educate. It was the, the content is mostly for education. I know all of us pretty much know how to do what we need to do, but I wanted to make sure others that were hearing things you know, had something tangible to learn from. Stuff has developed really fast too over the last year and a half. So what you know on, you know, at the end of 2022 versus now, uh, you know, I think there's a, a set of skills that kind of build up with that. But at the same time, there are new tools that come out and they kind of introduce uh, I don't want to say that they like throw a wrench into the gears cause that's not right, but they kind of like expand on the space that you're comfortable with. So you have to uh, adapt to that pretty rapidly. I would say, um, most recently, you know, over, over the last, let's say six months, video has, has really advanced a lot compared to where it was at in the past. So that to me, is maybe the the bleeding edge of of paying attention to like generative AI tools and uh, artwork in general. I know music is and, and audio is kind of coming up, but to me, you know, as somebody who's done audio for a long time, it is not quite to the point where you know I would like it or need it to be. I think that there were very smart tools out even a year ago and or I'm sorry even 10 years ago and like what we're getting in terms of like generative audio is not quite uh it it is not impressing me in, in as a listener or as a user quite yet but I think it'll get there why is that let's talk about that that to me is really fascinating why what what is it is it too tinny sounding still or it's you not can tell the, the difference? oh yeah it's not the it's not the quality of the audio so much i think mm -hmm. in some cases you do get some very good quality but it's not a solid compositional tool and so let's say like garage band you know 10 years ago you could turn a male voice into a female voice or vice versa, you know, right in GarageBand. Um, you could do emphasis detection with drums. So you could create a, a drum track right inside of GarageBand and, and other tools. And it's just the stuff that I'm seeing now from generative AI, they're just parlor tricks comparatively. So being able to emulate a voice like I'm not into deep fake stuff I, I don't really advocate for that not because uh 
I think it's bad. I just think it's a waste of time. You know, there's more interesting things to be creating and saying and doing than, I don't know, just making (laughs) just fake, fake media of celebrities or whatever is not interesting to me. It's not a compelling use case. I'm fine with it. I think that, you know, people should do whatever they want with the tools, but to me, it's just not, um, you know, what, what I would use it for. I agree. I agree. Yeah. I, yeah, the deep fake thing doesn't, I don't know. It's unappealing to me as an artist. I, I don't know. When I use voice, it's, it's mostly to enhance things or make the experience that I'm trying to get across sound better or look better or feel something, you know, and it does it a lot better than if I were to do my own like recording of myself. Uh, I don't know. I, I I don't know. Anyways, we could we can make a whole like a whole space around that, which would be really interesting. Yeah, for sure. Hey, what's up, Darren? <laughs> uh, welcome to the stage. If you are interested in talking shop or promoting your work, or you have questions about Terry's newest book, she also has a load of fiction stuff, and I do intend to get into that part of things as well over the course of the conversation, but you know, you're hanging out and you're here, so feel free. Hey, I, I just wanted to ask you, what's your opinion on the AI use uh, that Nicki Minaj uses? <laughs> I'm not even familiar with it. What did she do? So she basically like promotes like her singles through AI album art and like hands have six fingers and all things like that. So it's like crazy. Oh, I'm fine with that. It's cool. I like I'm using AI today to create imagery, um, you know, for for my own work. And I think that when the hands are kind of messed up, that's just the state of the way things are currently. It's not to say that it won't get better. I do believe it will. Um, I think, interestingly enough, right now, uh, we have much better hands but we still have kind of like weird feet and shoes and the models don't understand that there are feet inside of shoes or inside of socks. Um, They have a hard time kind of parsing that out. They just don't really have an understanding of that kind of, uh, I guess, object permanence and anatomy. in a thorough way, but it is what it is. It'll come along. You mean there's nobody training AIs on anatomy or even putting shoes and socks in there? I mean, that's a whole job that could be done. For sure there are. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's Laura's that clean that stuff up. Um, but I guess in a, in a, in an intuitive and like logical way in terms of like what they are, what they have the capacity to understand at a, at a base level, the way that we learn and we understand anatomy and object permanence. I don't, they're, you know, they're not there yet, but it will be. Carlos, Chris, we are talking with Terry about her writing and her publications today. If you would like to ask a question or talk shop, you're more than welcome to. 
Gotcha. I'm always a big fan of how Terry's done her stuff. So there's not much I really, um, I really have questions for. I always just like hearing how uh, she came upon to certain ideas and certain workflows and, you know, her trials and tribulations with KDP and all that fun stuff. Yeah. KDP has been kind of evolving a bit over the last, let's say three months, actually. Uh, just kind of changing out a few things on the back end because I had updated a bunch of my books in the last couple of months and um, was seeing just different options on that side of things as well. So, Terry, that might be something you want to take a look at if you want to update any of your existing material. Oh, that's good to know. Yeah, you know, at first I was... First, KDP was such, so, such a pain to use. And I think by the last three books, I think, like, I got more accustomed to using it. And, uh, you know, it, it's been a smoother process. I learned a few things along the way. I learned not to use um, the creator, KDP's creator. Like, stay away from it. You could basically do, like... Uh, what we did for um, AI for brand, the entire book is written in word right. and actually all the images are actually placed in word. Oh, that was, that was fun. <laughs> yeah, I did that. I do actually here. So here's my workflow. When I do books, I put it all into pages, which is basically word on Mac OS. Um, and then I export PDFs, load that up for the paper book or for the paperback. And then I pull that PDF into KDP create and do just the like straight translation of it. No adjusting or, you know, anything like that. Um, and then I push out the KPF file from create and upload that for the ebook, which is, you know, remarkably easy actually. Oh my God, you're so right. I mean, that was like the big enlightened thing that happened with AI for brands. I just love now that the um, table of contents is, you know, clickable and it works and, you know, it, it they really made a smoother process, at least that part of it, which was great. Yeah, I couldn't imagine using KDP Create for a paper paperback version. It just seems, I, I don't even know if you can, um, but using it for the Kindle and the app version that Amazon has, that when, when you just do the direct page placement kind of thing, the third option down inside of there, that is very, very easy. Uh, there are some things with the table of contents like auto detection where it's basically kind of looking through your title and then your headers where it's if you have like an h2 it will automatically detect that and put it into your table of contents which seems a little bit goofy to me i think if you have like title and h1 which are, you know most people use for chapter headings or whatever that seems reasonable but the going back through and then if there are, say, if there's like an H1 and an H2 on the same page, you basically have to go through and deselect and then recreate your H1 
contents insertion on there, which is just not very intuitive. But besides that, yeah, it's it's all right. Yeah, that that's great to know too. Um, index. Oh, I had to build my first index ever. And that that was a learning experience from the so I use Word, uh, MS Word, and it actually surprisingly went a lot smoother than I thought. Though so, um in the ebook part, it was it was great. I was I was so surprised by what the output was. So so I I don't know how many people out here do do their own self-publishing, but I've been self-publishing since uh, gosh, I think 2010. And the, the one book, um, that I did, I was just basically a paid author for, which is the, um, reimagining the in-store digital retails experience like that, that was published in the UK. So someone else did all the, uh, you know, um, I don't know the mechanics actually physically putting the book together, which was kind of nice. <laughs> Feel free to chime in. You guys don't have to raise your hands. It's just us. Hey, Chris. Hey, Terry. You, you talked about, you know, being a self-publisher. Um, for my novice level, um, could you give maybe a little bit of a definition to that and maybe what some of the mechanics or avenues that you've used to be, you know, quote unquote, a self-publisher? Yeah, happy to, Neil. Um, so, okay, so the the big misunderstanding is you need your own, like, physical publishing company. So you don't. So I, um, except for AI for Brands, I published under my own name. So I, I do have, like, um, a logo that I actually use for some of the, some of the books that I did. But I, I didn't create or manufacture or go out and get IP for my own publishing company. So the difference is I didn't submit my work to a publishing house to have them scrutinize it. And maybe, you know, some of the, the books that I wanted to publish had a, a timing aspect to them. So where the editor of a publishing company would probably take a red pen to most of my stuff. And then it might take longer than I really like for it it to get out there into the world. So that's the reason why I opted to do my own. I I just didn't like the frustration of having to shop my book. And I wanted to control like how it was created, what it looked like, what the content, you know, was in there. I I did pay for people to actually do some of the editing on it. I'm the world's worst editor. Um, but other than that, everything is, you know, you, you, you have your own royalties. Um, you have to do your own marketing, even for first time publishers from a, you know, a publishing company, you still, they, they don't pay for your marketing. You do it yourself. So they may help with a few little things like setting up, um, uh, you know, in-store book visits and things like that. But that's very rare. There's some aspects I want to jump on there too. So with Amazon, uh, KDP, Neil, you can get on there with no gatekeeping, right? And they will give you what is called an uh, 
ASBN, which is like an Amazon standard book number. Now, out in the traditional publishing world, there are what there are what is uh, there's what is called like the ISBN, right? The and there's only one organization that sells these things, um, so it's kind of a cartel in that way. But now, you can find other channels to distribute your books through, and some of them may take an ASBN. I think Lulu will, um, and, and maybe a couple others. But when you start looking at like the, what is that? The Barnes and Noble store and a bunch of these other retailers, they don't always honor the ASBN. So to, to get that broader distribution and the traditional publishing world does not care about ASBNs at all. Uh, they are going to want you to have the ISBN because that's basically like this cartel that has a big database and they keep track of all publications around the world for, you know, scanning and sales numbers and everything else. Uh, that does open up a bunch of distribution routes for you. Oh, another one that doesn't really care about it is Apple Books. So you can get onto Apple Books without an ISBN as well. Or at least you could last time I tried. Yeah, I, I think it's ISBN services. That's that's what we used for um, AI for brands. Yeah, so, so there's a company called Boker. Yeah. Boker's, yeah, Boker. Yeah, right. there's Boker. Too. Yeah. yeah, Boker is is basically like, the the market front of the uh the ISBN cartel <laughs> so you can buy them in bulk there uh they're usually like discounted if you buy like 10 or more or whatever just in that sense but yeah i would say you know if you if you are on a time frame and you want to be able to to push stuff out pretty rapidly um you know amazon and if you have the audience to promote around, then, you know, Amazon's a great way to do it. There are a lot of people in self-publishing. I'm in a group chat here on Twitter that's, you know, 50 some odd people or whatever, um, you know, just writers and, and they put out their material that way. They're, you know, none of them are traditionally published. And, you know, there are some people that are, you know, hitting on pretty good success. I think the, ac the average book sells, you know, not even 200 copies. Uh, and that's through publishers too. So, you know, if, if, if you sell a hundred copies to 200 copies of a book, you're kind of like right in that wheelhouse, but that doesn't mean that you're going to get a deal to put out your next book. So in a, in a sense, it might be better to look at it like the minor leagues or like the underground music scene and kind of build up momentum. And then if you can approach a traditional publisher in some sense, um, and Chris, I see you there. It, it works the same way I would assume with film, um, in that, in that sense to where it's like, if you can build up an audience and you can, if you can generate money off of it, then you will attract broader distribution. Go ahead, man. Oh yeah. No, I was just seeing if anyone else had a point. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the same thing. Basically all art is kind of similar. You build up enough of an audience, then, you know, somebody who wants more money, the mountain of money they have already will will come and knock it. Um, more of what I was gonna, uh, you know, I uh, put my hand up for is I think Terry was talking about like the crypto aspect to add on to it, and um, I don't know how much you've looked into Manifold and how there's a there's like a merch bridge there, but you know I've always thought that people trying to sell through Manifold and finding a way to bridge to their to either their physical or digital items 
is like the key. Um, just only because of whatever uh, audience you can build up through Twitter and through Web3, because it is its own, it's its own sales niche from so many different angles. It's its own sales niche, especially if you could take crypto for certain things. It's it's friggin' insane. So I don't know if uh, you guys have looked into that or what your thoughts are. I, I haven't looked into it, Chris. Um, I guess I will look into it to see, you know, how it works and what the options are and things like that. Uh, I am trying to do like more like how do I connect it, you know, with the, the digital and physical world, which would be great um, and interesting as well. Um, Have you I think done something any merch? Merchandise? Oh, yeah. I have, like, I'm I'm now downsizing my stores to, to one store. So I have a, a um, company up in uh, Canada that does my clothing, and then a company in the UK that does clothing and um, more fine arts things. Um, but I'm, I'm trying to downsize everything to one store so I could actually have a um, sell direct from my my website, which okay. was so do much you, helpful. Do you have a, is the store you have like self-hosted or are you doing it through another service? No, I do it through another um, service. It's like a print on demand service for clothing, but they have amazing uh, shapes. So they're really unique and I really like them. We just got a, a piece in today um, and it's just this, they, they do such a great printing job on, and their materials are just amazing <laughs> so um yeah but i i want to downsize everything because i'm getting to the point where for me it's just too much like i don't know um management and i want to make a smoother management process for myself so i could focus on the things that i love like getting my next book out <laughs> so and things like that you know um something that we we should mention like not just with the ISBN number, but it's the um, the Library of Congress number, which is also important if you want your book to be in the catalog for librarians to to find and uh, source. So I think that that's also a, an, another important aspect uh, of doing um, of, of when you're self-publishing. Yeah, you know, I haven't really followed up on that too much. Uh, some other people have put some of my books into libraries, which is awesome, you know, on their part. But yeah, that's definitely something that I don't think comes up quite enough um, in general. And it's probably something I need to look into. Yeah, it um what is it? AI for brands was the first one that I did the whole LLOC, um, which was really an incredible experience. Um actually Frank, who's the co-author, he has all this stuff like down. Um, so uh he was great to lean on and and really understand the mechanics around it and why we needed to do that and stuff like that. Which is good because like like you, Michael, I, I do have a list of libraries that I send I or your friends send your books to libraries. I have a list of libraries that I send to, but it would be nice to be on the list for the others other libraries. <laughs> so here's an interesting piece too. So um, you know, you can go and make a request at your library for them to purchase and 
that's something I advocate for now on the audiobook side because I do all my own audiobooks too. So they are tapped into like Overdrive and Libby a lot of times for their audiobook uh, platform, I guess. Some of them buy individual, but a lot of them are using this larger network platform to source audiobook material. So occasionally, you know, I'll get a library that like buys my entire catalog, which is fantastic, you know, um, and then it's available to their to their members, their their usership that way. And that doesn't, you know, there's to my knowledge, like, you know, they're, they're not requiring traditional ISBN or anything uh, from the Library of Congress or anything like that. They can just acquire what they want. Oh my God, that's a great tip. <laughs> that's really cool. Just a question either of you can answer. It's like, um, how? What's the approach for that? Is that just like sending them like kind of a cold letter, or, or you know, you go in, you warm them up, you talk to somebody? Like, what's that situation like for an acquisition request? Yeah, for a library to acquire whatever it is you. So for the paperbacks, so at your local library, right? Um, you know, you would go in and you can say, hey, I would like to request uh, a paperback acquisition. Uh, sometimes if they're part of a larger network of libraries, they will search and see if it's available via interlibrary loan. And if it is, then they'll get it for you that way. If it isn't, then, you know, they will put that on their list of of future acquisitions and then they will purchase that book in a lot of cases. So that's a good way to, you know, get a couple of sales or anything like that. Uh, I don't know how many libraries you have around you or how many you're a member of or whatever, but that's, you know, one way of, of driving some book sales. And then, uh, in terms of the audiobook side of things, you know, people with Libby, there's, they're pulling from some database. So when you're in there, um, you can search for titles and it will pull up that metadata. And then you can basically like put in a request, an acquisition request, um, right through that app. So then that library network is, you know, that's going into some database or, or list on their side of things as well. So you just go in there as you and you just request for an acquisition like and, you know, they're just like, OK, we'll take a look type of thing. Or like, is there any approval process? Like what? It just seems so crazy to me just because that might be the only difference in most other art is like there's no place that you could just go, hey, uh, you know, public uh, institution, acquire my film or acquire my comic book or acquire my uh, album. You know, well, there's this no other place for that. So. Like, uh, if you don't belong to that library, you probably can't make a request there. So I couldn't just call up your library <laughs> without being, you know, a member or a resident of that community and, and request that they purchase my book. You can do that. You could go in there and, and request, you know, all of my books and they would then do that. Um, same thing with, with Libby. If you have a library card. You put in that data into Libby and then you have access to all of the audiobooks in their network. But then you can go in there 
and search for different authors and their book releases. And it has an option for requesting to be like, inform me when this becomes available and it goes into some kind of list or whatever, because like I've, I've requested, you know, books that were not available to me and then they were later made available. So the library system had acquired it. And so like, um, you know, for me, the library, you know, I have a handful of library cards, but one of them is really, really huge. Their network is really huge. They have like 40,000 titles, but they also have multiple copies of titles. So any one, any one individual library, you know, can make their copy available through that interlibrary audiobook loan service or something like that. But then also they can all get their own copy to make sure that their membership has it available to them. Um, perhaps not exclusively, but more readily, I would, I would say it that way. Wow, that, that's such great information. Jeez, I had no idea. <laughs> yeah, and I would, man, I cannot advocate enough for audiobooks. Um, so Spotify just opened up their audiobook distribution in the last month. And that has, you know, done pretty well, all considering, you know, that it's a brand new service. Um, if you have premium on there, you can get, I think it's like 15 hours a month of audiobooks, uh, which is more audio than I have available in my catalog personally right now. Um, but, you know, there are some books that are very, very long, you know, that'll be 30 and 40 hours long. So you might have to uh, kind of build up to that or something. I, I don't know exactly how their their rollover system works or anything like that. But um, yeah, I, I think it's, it's an, and here's another thing too. So if you are distributing your paperback and eBooks on Amazon, and then you have an audio book that you are pushing through onto Audible, you can connect that listing from Audible to the paperback on Amazon. So when it, so if you go and search any of my books, there's a paperback, an ebook, and an audiobook option available on the the listing on Amazon. So it makes all of those available together on the same page. You don't have to go over to Audible to find the audiobook. It it puts it right there. Yeah, I have that with um the only audio book I have is um Laundrygate, but it connects it's all connected, which is so nice. Right. It makes it so much easier. Yeah. I would, I would highly advocate for anybody to do their audiobook. Uh, it's, it's not, it's not necessarily an easy process the first time around. So for example, um, the first book I put out was the Chicago 1893 book. And while I was doing that, I was thinking about doing the documentary and then was kind of researching how to do that process and, and, and what would be maybe some of the problems that I would run into. And as I, you know, I knew I was going to use the paperback editorial for the voiceover. So I then learned that I could use that voiceover reading 
as an audiobook to push out into Audible and Amazon. Um, you know, so you get another, I, you know, I got a, a couple of products out of that one read. Uh, in that amount of time, I've kind of streamlined my audiobook production process. So now I actually do my audiobook readings before I put out, you know, a paperback and an ebook because I use it as a proofreading exercise, just like one last round of getting a look at the, at the copy and, uh, you know, making any slight revisions or changes as I feel are necessary, just based off of, you know, how it feels while I'm reading it aloud and, and listening to that. Oh my God. That's another great tip. I, I wish I knew that when I was doing, um, laundry gate because i think doing it like that would have saved me in a ton of edits the i i'm not very i would be horrible at um reading my own or narrating my own book i disagree no no i i i had christy lynn do it and she was phenomenal now i have to have her do all the other laundry gate books because she's she has all the character voices which is real great (laughs) <laughs> and she was such a pro and so good to work with. So, um, or maybe yeah. you guys could work together. You do the main editorial and she comes in for the voices, which <laughs> there are some cool multi voiced readings. Like the Dune series has a multi voiced reading that is pretty great. I think I, I was listening to relic that that's your book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's really good. Thank you. I am not good at voices. I do a little bit of like character voiceover here and there. Um, I, I did it on that book just because I was trying to make them more like audio plays and to kind of bring it to life that way. But, you know, I've only got like a handful of voices. You know, I've got my natural voice and then I can put on an English accent and then I can put on like a lower version of my voice uh, or a scarier version or yelling or something. That's about it. <laughs> I kind of run out of gas on that. So on the, on the subject of audiobooks, um, I know Amazon is really strict. Like I can't have an AI narrator. Correct. For Audible. Yeah. And, and how about with, um, Spotify and, um, Apple? Uh, I think Apple actually opened up AI reading recently. So I, you know, I don't know what their policy is there, but at the same time, you know, I really appreciate when an author performs the reading of their book. I like that. I think, you know, only a handful of times has the author given a a poor performance in my opinion. And it's, and it's usually like some, you know, mainstream media personality or whatever and they're just like not into it (laughs) and and they were like dragged into a studio and aren't really like in love with performing and they probably had a book deal because they whatever xyz reason so they put out a book and now they're in in front of a mic and you can tell they don't really care or they're not they probably didn't even really like write it it was probably ghost written for them uh because they just sound uncomfortable with the words passing through their mouth for the first time um but yeah you know i think it's it's really good when when authors actually do the reading of their material that way and 
I agree. I, 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 um, Mark Jeffrey does an amazing job. I mean, an amazing job, even on the character voices. Like I, his last book that I, I was listening to and I, I couldn't get over like the depth of the character voices that he went into. It was really great. And yeah, I had a really bad experience. I, I was a, I'm a huge fan of Tom Robbins books. And when I saw him read at Central Park, I was like, I will never listen to him read again. <laughs> it was all, it crushed me. I'm like, his books are so amazing and dynamic and out there. But I don't know. Like sometimes like in, in the way I think of like writing, like I get so engrossed in the writing part. Like I can hear the story in my head, but articulating it the way I hear it in the head, I would be a total disaster reading my own work. <laughs> I don't think so. I, you know, I think that you probably just need a little bit of practice. Like the first one that I did, uh, you know, that became the voiceover for the documentary. It took me forever to record because it was the first time that I was performing, you know, uh, reading in a way that I knew was, I wanted to be a high quality studio recording. I used a condenser mic for it, which was a mistake. Uh, now I just use an SM 58, which is a lot more um, let me, let me reverse that. It's a lot less sensitive, which saves me a massive amount of editing time in terms of being concerned with environmental noise. So my condenser, I recorded that voiceover, that audio book in Pennsylvania. And, <laughs> you know, there were trucks, uh, in the distance, planes in the distance. And I would pick up all that stuff because of how hypersensitive a powered microphone is um after switching to just you know a regular dynamic mic uh, that is not powered it saves me so much time and the the loss in terms of quality really it's only on that high end um in if i had a different voice that might be something that i was concerned with but i don't so an SM58 for me works really, really great. Uh, I do a little bit of uh, EQ post-production stuff. I toss a gate on it and some compression and just let it rip. I, I really have like vastly shortened the amount of time it takes for me to perform a read and then get the edits out and turn it around. Well, the SM58 is a classic. Oh, yeah. that's that's what everyone uses it's you know anytime somebody's like what mic should i get just i was like just start with an sm58 if you need anything else well that was the fine. funny thing i performed on an sm58 live with bands for years and years you know so i i'm very comfortable with them and have used them for forever you know at this point uh, i've used condensers a lot in the studio for recording and i wanted to achieve that quality of audio but in turn, it just resulted in so much post-production work in, in the sense of like editing and um, gaming well, and stuff. I mean, yeah, the, the more professional microphones, the thing about them that no one ever realizes is you need the room that's professional as well. Right. You, need the, you need the sound dampening. You need all this and all that. This is like the problem in filmmaking 
is because you want like an ultra sensitive condenser um, because you want every piece of audio to come through, but you're not usually performing in rooms that are meant for that. So, you know, you get a lot of shit that you have to clean up or dampen or somehow figure out, but you, you made it to a good spot. SM58s are, they're like, they're, they're the best. They, they should never stop making them. And hopefully the Sennheiser are always listening. Well, SM58s are sure. Oh, sure. Yeah, sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Does any of that help you out, Neil? I know we kind of went off on some tangents, but hopefully it's useful. No, very much. And yeah, I mean, I appreciate, uh, guys, some of the smartest people in the space um, are in this room right now. So, uh, yeah, it's just uh, a whole nother rabbit hole uh, for me to uh, go down and learn about as usual, uh, with this group of friends, uh, very helpful. So thanks. Yeah. If you ever have questions about it, you know, I'm sure Terry would help you, but I'd be more than happy to look over whatever you got to. And I know you have a magazine that you're doing, right? Yeah, I did the one, I mean, uh, made some physicals, uh, uh, black pick one up. Uh, uh, yeah. With, uh, you know, over the past 10 years, I, I would imagine there's probably some data to back this up, but I mean, just with the growth in technology and tablets and phones in everyone's hands now, it just seems to be a big shift towards eBooks as opposed to traditional books. I, I would imagine. Correct? I would refute that. Uh, it, okay. So yeah. for me, there's paper paperbacks and audiobooks vastly outsell eBooks at this point. I think that the eBook side of things got really saturated and then just the nature of how rapidly you can push out crap um you know that happened and now we've got ai where people are just like really really quickly turning out some crap and like to be able to uh produce paperbacks you have to you can either you can either uh do the cover layout yourself or say with KDP, you can use their cover designer, but you still have to like physically be doing that. You can't just like ask chat GPT to turn out a thing because you either have to use their interface or you have to download a custom template based on your word count. Whereas with the ebook side of things, you can just slap together like the the front cover of it and turn that out. And that doesn't require anything more than just like, again, um, asking for mid journey or Dolly or whatever to turn out some crap. And then you put some text on it and you can slap out crap. Whereas with the audiobook side of things, that's again, because they don't require or they 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 don't allow for AI reading the, the crap publication ratio is much lower, uh, similar to paperbacks. So like for me personally, those are the two platforms that I sell way more of than, uh, than eBooks and, and have, you know, for the last five years. Same here. Same here. It's the hardcover and and the paperback that sell more than the, uh, the ebook. And actually I, I always get asked that question. Oh, is it an ebook? 
<laughs> and I'm like, well, I've got a hardcover and I got paperback. Okay, I'll take one. <laughs> right. So, yeah. There, there is an art. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, I was going to say, I think it also is the same thing with music. Like, you know, vinyl's coming back and it's like outselling a lot of other things. It's not outselling streaming just because streaming is easier. But on the other hand, like when people are buying things, they're buying physicals that are very in-depth that you need to have a certain type of player for. You need to have a record player in order to play a vinyl. But a lot of people are also just buying them for the, like, the huge aesthetic of having that giant you know, album in your hands. And I think there's, there's that aspect of like it takes something to do it. You know, it's not just like, you know, putting a song up on streaming or on YouTube. It's a matter of something has to be pressed and something has right. to be designed and all this other shit. So I think that yield is is playing in people's ears, especially the audience. I, yeah, that's, I, that, that, that's very interesting. Um, and I guess there's a, you're a bit a bit, a bit more on the intimacy intimacy scale when a person actually has a physical copy of your work as opposed to just an electronic copy and that's just a something i'm pretty passionate about so that's uh uh yeah that's that's great to hear um actually so thanks yeah even even for the the picture book side of things like for me the picture book is not about it's not a literary piece it's it's a it's fine arts piece, and and that's what I want to keep doing, because then it, and people want the phys, like I think of the picture books that I do as like the coffee table books, so it's something pretty to put down on the or, or maybe not in some cases, um, you know it's something to put on the coffee table and and have it look great and I mean that's where it shines. It doesn't do so well in the ebook format. I mean because people are like. I like to hold it and look at it and put it back down on my coffee table. <laughs> right. For sure. Well, you know, we've been going for a little over an hour now. Uh, Carlos, you haven't chimed in. If you have any questions or comments before I kind of wrap things up, you know, feel free. Otherwise, if you guys have any closing thoughts or questions, you know, now is that time. I'll be really quick. Uh, love listening to you guys chat about this stuff because I'm just soaking it all in and the wheels are spinning. So uh, thanks for hosting this, Michael. And thanks for uh, Terry and, and Chris. Uh, all good stuff. Absolutely. So I do this every two weeks, same time on Wednesdays. Basically, you know, always looking for guests that have a publication release. Uh, you know, Terry and I did a podcast. And that was released this week, um, you know, and then I asked her to come on here as the featured guest to talk about some of her other work, which we didn't get to on the traditional interview podcast side of things. So this was just kind of a way to expand into that more. And then, as always, like this is all about, you know, workshopping and uh, talking uh, craft and getting into some of the gritty technical details of, of getting the work out. Um, I'm trying, you know, personally, I'm trying to get two publications out this year. One is going to be my, uh, first like standalone fiction work. 
And then the other will be volume three of my national parks series, which is heavily photographic. Um, the manuscript is, is getting into shape. Uh, so coming along with both of those. And I think that when you do this stuff, um, you know, talking more about it, I, I did a, a space on clubhouse for about six to eight months with a group of folks over there, which was kind of, uh, a collection of workshop and then, um, you know, launch party kind of promotion events. That was, gosh, I don't know, 2001, I think. <laughs> uh, and that was, that was really very cool. And it was a strong community and I would love for this to kind of be something like that as well. So for the people that are hanging out, if you are working on material or, uh, you know, you want help with things, you know, this is a, a place to, to get it, hopefully. Yeah, Michael, thank you so much for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. And I've learned so much. Um, those were great, great, great suggestions and tips on, on the publishing side of things. And um, I, too, I'm, I have two books that I, I plan on getting out this year. One is a picture book called Strange Place, which I'm putting through um, Black's Neil, and uh, Neil knows about it. Like, it's, uh, oh, and, and Michael, you're in the, the studio, and I think Chris shows up every once in a while, too. Um, right. So Black's uh, AI studio. and. So Strange Place will be about 150 pages of illustration. And basically, I'm learning how to be a better typographer. And then the other is I'm 75% finished uh, writing um, the next volume of Laundrygate, which I think is going to be published by the end of the year. I keep putting it off because Laundrygate is my baby, and I like to take my time with it. So... um, but again, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate like being on the podcast and being uh, in this space. And I've, I've learned a lot from you. And this has been wonderful. Very cool. Well, uh, two weeks from today, I think that's February uh, 6th or 7th or something or other. We'll be back in here. I will obviously be uh, posting about that when that comes up. And, um, you know, I, again, everybody's more than welcome to come and showcase their work and promote the stuff. If you're up on the stage, you know, you feel free to, to post links and all the rest like that. 